got your second record, and it's the song you wrote. Uh, yes, I write most of the stuff I record. Please, I know those songs. I understand there are plans for something much more ambitious. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake Kettle. And with me, of course, as always, is founder and host of Dose Nation, and a co-host of Dose Nation, James Kent. James, how are you? I'm good. I wanted to mention that we got a lot of feedback this week on the podcast we did on quantum mechanics and quantum physics. Um, most of it was positive, saying thank you for explaining this. Some of it was um, said that I was maybe not explaining all interpretations of quantum mechanics as fully as I should, which may be a time limitation and maybe because I tend to favor one particular interpretation over the others. Uh, and that's just my bias. But um we may revisit that podcast later with a guest who would maybe pose some arguments to some of the assumptions that I make about quantum mechanics, but we're not going to do that today. Science is, you know, searching, striving for the objective nature of reality. That's something and, we want to do today. <laughs> and our consciousness is mostly subjective, and we're going to talk about something today that tries to blend the objective and the subjective uh, break down that boundary between object and subject, and that, of course, is art, and more particularly psychedelic art. So would you like to introduce our guest? Of course. Today's guest is uh, Ken Johnson, and he's an art critic for the New York Times, an author of Are You Experienced? How Psychedelic Consciousness Transformed Modern Art. Ken, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Ken, I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about your book but uh, and psychedelic art and um, exciting movements in modern art. But, I, but first, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, art history in the West and how we got to where we are today. Um, what, what is your – you usually do art galleries and reviews, but what's, what's your background in art? I started as an art major in college. I went to grad school and studied painting, got a master's in painting, and then started writing art reviews uh, for the Albany Times Union in upstate Albany, New York, in the mid-'80s. Uh, then I started writing for uh, art magazines, and then I started writing. That was in the 80s into the 90s, and I've been writing for the New York Times since 1997. And what drew your uh, what drew your attention to art? Why did you want to become an art major or study oh, art in wow. particular? I mean, as opposed well, to everything else that you can study, what was it that drew you to that field? Well, besides wanting to be a rock star and a football player, I wanted to uh, first to be a novelist. Oh yeah, and uh, <laughs> and then I found that telling stories seemed like for me it was like squeezing blood out of a stone, but somehow making art seemed to come easy in, I don't know, I just seemed to think uh, visually and be able to translate that into images in a way that that I liked. And then, so, but I did always want to write, so combining what I seemed to know about art from making it and looking at it and enjoying writing, that it, it worked out that way. It wasn't a plan, but it happened. And I know this is kind of a subjective question, but for you, what period of art are you most drawn to? What typifies your your concept of high art? Are you are you more drawn to modern art, or are you more fond of the classical masters? Oh, I think my my consciousness was has definitely been shaped by art since well, the period that my book is about art since uh, the mid sixties, uh, probably what generally is called the postmodern era. 
I feel most comfortable looking at contemporary art. I feel like I know most about it. But I, you know, I, I in my job, I write about everything. I just wrote a review of the the tribe of headhunters that 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 used to live in northern um, India, and uh, that I never knew anything about. So my job entails learning uh, in public about a lot of other things. So it's it's pretty uh, wide ranging. I have to say my own my own particular fascination with art comes from the evolution of the technique, especially in painting. I think in sculpture the the technique can see perfect you can see perfected back in ancient Greece and maybe even before that you're getting very realistic um 3D depictions of of reality, but in in painting you didn't really get full depth and perspective and shading until, you know, that early renaissance period. Um, and since yeah, then, I don't know. I mean, I mean, uh, I I have never been to the caves, but uh, uh, Lascaux or those uh, places where you see art on the walls dating back to uh, you know thirty five thousand years ago. But it's amazing how um, how elegant that work can be, and and how in some ways true to uh, reality some of the stuff that that still remains right did you see the so, Werner, did you see that Werner Herzog movie yeah that's a, that's a pretty good uh, pretty uh, good idea James what? yes sorry I, I I just wanted to interject it's 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 you you brought up a great point about it I mean as far as the evolution of of art you you, you talked about the ancient Greeks and mm-hmm. you talked about you know the Renaissance and uh, how it went from, you know, sort of that that kind of very dull looking, um, almost de- you know depressed feeling of the Dark Ages art. Well, yeah, everything to, was flat and in yeah. pers- and inside perspective, and I mean because they hadn't really figured out the technique. Well, yet. I, I, and I also think in part it is uh, reflective of the societies in which they live too. I mean, if you look at you know art made during the Dark Ages, it is reflective of the suffering of the time. It's uh, but if you look at the Renaissance period. High art. I mean, this is a this is a period where learning is booming, where intellectualism is booming. There's more depth to the work. Yeah, and that's yeah, and, the question. And, of, go ahead, Ken. Well, the culture in the Renaissance is no longer uh, top down from based on the authority of the of scripture and the church. It start you start to see people thinking, "What does the world appear like to me, to the individual?" And so uh, you, you start to get an exploration of perception. From uh, you know, from from the body, and and in a kind of empirical way of looking at the world. And you see form really perfected in in the Renaissance period. You see uh, the sculptural form of say Bernini completely perfected. Um, you've got uh, masters studying perspective and shading and getting um, super three D realism. That when you're staring at a painting, even up close, it looks like there's things actually standing off off of the print. Um, and yeah, it yeah. seems like and since not only that, but but with people like I mean, uh, artists in the 17th century started using the camera obscura. Oh right, yeah, yeah sure. To get that rounded so, perspective. Yeah, so you get like this photographic look in in uh, artists like Vermeer. Mm-hmm. So you get so you get a lot of you get a lot of evolution of technique that I think um, creates almost true realism at that at that point. You're getting you're getting what's what I would consider the early early photorealism. But then you know after the Baroque period, form begins to deconstruct in visual art. It's like they reached a point of perfecting the technique and then they started to take it apart a little bit. 
And that's, I think, where modern art starts to get interesting in those romantic periods and the impressionist periods. And then, you know, you get into surrealism and Dadaism and abstract expressionism before we even get to the modern period that you're talking about. So that's, that's quite uh, a long journey. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I, and I think, may, I, I don't know, I'm not an art historian, but, um, it seems like the, um, Increasingly, over the course of what you're talking about, uh, subjectivity plays more and more of a role. Right, exactly. Because, yeah. The distortions of consciousness. Yeah, and the perceptions of those distortions of consciousness of the artist become the text of the piece, as opposed to getting a a realistic interpretation of a still life, say. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. And that's, I think, what's really, I think what really differentiates, you know, the modern art, the, the impressionists forward from that, that classical past is putting the, the perspective of the painter as, as the text and not, you know, the subtext. Um, and so that's, that's, I think, um, a good place to, where are we going? Oh yeah, go ahead, Jake. Yeah, so <clears throat> this is a. This don't, actually, you don't need to ask if you can ask questions. Well, just, you know, you know butt in. I don't want to butt into to 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 end up to, and, and veer it off into another conversation. No, go ahead and but veer it a, off for a little bit. But there's a particular type of art that I'm that I'm particularly interested in. It's called um, iconography, uh, and it's mainly used now by the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. Still, you know, paints icons, but um, they they've they've been relatively unchanging throughout the years. Um, the way that they're made. Um, what, what do you know about the history of icons and their, their place in the world of art? Because I don't really hear about them mentioned very often, uh, outside of a religious context. Um, but from an art perspective, um, what are your thoughts on iconography and, uh, iconographic art? Oh, wow. I, well, again, this, these are really complicated <laughs> art historical questions that I don't have the scholarly, uh, uh equipment to deal with, but, uh, I think, you know, modern artists have looked a lot at icons and, and like the early Russian constructivists, uh, made, uh, very simplified abstract paintings that were a kind of, kind of thought of as modern icons. Um, the first person I thought of, uh, in contemporary art that while you were talking was Andy Warhol, where his portraits of, um, People like Marilyn Monroe and Elvis and other celebrities function as sort of not just uh, comments on consume, on entertainment culture, but sort of posit uh, these figures as gods for for the modern time, and they have an iconic kind of presence. Which so is interesting. Think, uh, go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry, uh, but. but um, it's it it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh when you think about it these 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 people are you know at least in the consciousness of that time and still <clears throat> i think up to today they are i i mean they are um icons of uh modern society they're icons of what um people should strive to do or should strive to look like or should strive to be like and so on and so forth so in that way well i think this is this is a pretty uh, this is a pretty interesting discussion um and i want to i want to peel it back one other layer one other layer and there's i think a debate in the art community or a split in the art community between what what can be considered uh, high art and what's considered graphic art and for some reason graphic art doesn't always fall into the category of high art and most iconography is i think a form of graphic art and 
um, I think so you get some people like Lichtenstein and Andy Warhol that kind of break the barrier between graphic art and high art. But then you've got all of these comic book artists who work for, you know, DC and Marvel who make amazing iconography, icon, iconographic images of Superman and Spider-Man. And they're not necessarily considered high art, even though their technique is, is, is perfected down to the, to the smallest detail. What do you, what do you think of that split, Ken, between like the graphic art community and the high art community? Um, well, I think, I mean, my, part of it is just sociological. I mean, the high art world is, is, art, is institutionally determined in a lot of ways. You have certain museums like, uh, you know, the Museum of Modern Art or the Whitney Museum, uh, and what they choose is, is what passes for high art and, and what you see in, galleries uh in Chelsea and, and other major art centers, that's what high art is. And the kind of art that you're talking about is um, which is often disseminated through more or less cheap publications is a whole other world. And I and it, it's not really my world, although although lately I've been playing around with making cartoons myself and thinking more about it. Um it's it's just it's not a kind of art that's made for gallery presentation. It can be shown in galleries, and and our Crumbs work has been shown in galleries, but it originated in a whole in a very different form. And uh, so you know the the issues of money and uh, one of a kind production and all that play into it a lot. But as you say, a lot of high art. Uh, may not be in the form of uh, cheaply reproducible uh, formats, but may often be about that, about popular culture in all sorts of ways. Right, like making but, a making a commentary on on you know throwaway culture or throwaway art. Yeah, I mean it's often said that there's been a collapse of high culture and low culture, so that happened in the in the '60s. You know, probably first in music when the Beatles and Bob Dylan started being taken seriously by musicologists. Um, but in a lot of ways, the high art world still tries to maintain uh, a notion of of a distance between the so-called avant-garde, you know, the more high-minded artists and people who work for, for more popular consumption. So let's move from that into the world of modern art and um, the background of why you chose to write a book on on psychedelic consciousness and the influence of modern art. Can you tell me where the the inception for that idea came from? I, you know, it's it's hard to say. I, I it wasn't there wasn't like a bolt from the blue, but I remember sometime in the in the nineties, I had started writing for art magazines, and people would say to me, "Well, when are you going to do a book?" And I didn't have a good answer until one day I thought, oh, here's an idea. Um, and it seemed to me that that there was a kind of psychedelic vibe to a lot of contemporary high art that I was seeing. And this became more and more uh, prevalent uh, from the 90s on, I think, especially as you get younger generations of, of artists whose parents came of age in the 60s. and Still had major artists whose mind, own minds were shaped in the 60s. And I thought, well, the 60s was the first time in history that I know of that, that psychedelic substances 
were being consumed on a mass basis and produced in, in a practically industrialized kind of way. And the first time that a middle, a broad middle class was being directly or indirectly influenced by these new kinds of uh, consciousness altering products. And in my book, I marked that time that 1965, which is when the acid tests in, um, by Ken Kesey and his, uh, Mary Pranksters, were, sure, yeah. And the Mary Pranksters and the Grateful Dead. And that was a time when, you know, that, that coincided, I was 13 or 12 or 13 in 1965. So I was, and I was growing up in Maine, but I was getting the news and I, it was a, it, it altered my consciousness, even though I didn't actually start smoking weed till a few late years later and never really became a big time tripper. But the whole culture of that was hugely exciting to me and, and shaped how I've uh, continued to always thought about art. It seems to me that it's taken for granted that music in the early 60s and the mid-60s, specifically, like you said, the Beatles and Bob Dylan, their music was changed by experimenting with drugs. And because their music was changed by experimenting with drugs, that experimentation trickled down into everybody who was influenced by them, who may or may not have experimented with drugs. But that experiment kept rolling through the 60s and into the early 70s. And, you know, you, you can follow it through house music in the 90s and dubstep today. I mean, there's just it's this progression of music that's influenced by drug use, drug scenes, drug culture, drug subculture. But in the art world, it seems to be not taken for granted that this is the case and that there's just not, not, a, not a class certainly. of eccentric geniuses out there coming up with weird stuff. But you're trying to tie together some, some more concrete influences here. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm making a, uh, a positing a theory that, uh, has not been written about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's not saying, I mean, initially I thought, um, it would be a good idea to actually go and interview artists who came of age at that time and who are now considered major figures and ask them, you know, cause I, I imagine that artists were, uh, some of the, the, the percent that a lot of artists were doing this stuff and, uh, and were influenced by music and, and the collapse of all kinds of categories. And, um, so, but what I did was to, Look at the art itself and not try to, pr and, and, and without claiming that any particular artist did do psychedelics, but just look at what they did and say, uh, and, and look for what different kinds of psychedelic influence, which aren't necessarily the kind of what's typically thought of as psychedelic style. Meaning, that, um, kaleidoscopic and full of bright colors. Right. Right. That's what you, that's what you're talking about when you're saying, um, you know, typically or stereotypically psychedelic. You're talking about something that's more subtle, a juxtaposition of reality and and dream. Or right. Well, I I mean, to me, one of the great works of psychedelic art uh, of of the past fifty or sixty years is Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty, the land art piece that he made out in the desert of. Right, and that was he basically uses um, large, huge sails of cloths to to fabricate a. No, no, no. He's he's the one that that he made a, a um, out of rock and sand 
into the oh, oh that's the one that was out okay out of rock and sand into so he, he built that right into the desert so it's it's it goes that into the the great salt like is it the great salt like uh, anyway it makes a spiral form so that's a that's a, a piece of land art that's um you know it's conceptual and what's what's psychedelic about it particularly well it makes a large spiral form so it, it you know spiral is an ancient symbol of um spiritual uh, uh advancement and you know it's a mystical system and and i think it's also important to realize that 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 piece was made in 1971, which was right around the time that thousands and thousands of young people were moving on to communes and getting back to the earth and the notion of making um, culture that was in a more direct relationship to the cosmos was, uh, you know, a product of an artifact of psychedelic thinking. And then we take that kind of art for granted. I mean, so you know, someplace like Burning Man, that might be, you know, a, a similar installation like that might be reproduced. But before that, in terms of modern art, that was that was fairly unheard of. Now you've got a you know different kind of land artists doing stunts all the time. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the probably the most famous one now is James Terrell, who has occupied a crater in the Southwest. Um, and transformed it so that when you, I haven't been there, but when you go into it, you look up and the rim of the creator frames the sky so that you see nothing but the sky. And this is, uh, uh, it isolates that as this sort of pure blue feeling. Hmm. And, and his, and he's having a, uh, a, a big show at the Guggenheim in, in New York now. And it's all about light. And and uh, it's very very trippy. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if he would admit to having been influenced by psychedelics back in the sixties, but uh, it certainly looks that way to me. Now it seems to me that artists in general are maybe a little bit cagier than musician about explaining where their influences come from. Is that yeah? Is that true? <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, um, I think again, it, it has to do with the sociology of the, of the high art world where, uh, there's a kind of sanitation that goes on that, that wants us to think of the artist as, as a kind of pure intellect. And, um, without, uh, you know, any kind of performance enhancing, uh, effects. And, well, you know, the other thing is, you know, drugs are illegal. Uh, they have very, they have seamy associations. Um, and but we're pretty you know, sure nobody, Andy, nobody wants no no sure great artist. Hall was taking drugs. I mean, at some point, well, he's, he's it, it's said in his case he was a workaholic and he did a lot of uh, speedy type drugs. Right. Uh, I believe he he wasn't very interested in psychedelic drugs. Have you ever seen you know, his that, movies? <laughs> well, yeah, I wrote about his movies in my in, in my book, and I, you know, to me, they're like wonderful examples of a kind of stoner. Uh, right, and, right, right. Um, exactly. I mean, he was his his world was full of drug drugged people, uh, 
but again, you know, this is something that I'm not sure if, you know, has Warhol talked about that? Have, have the people, it, it hasn't been brought out. We can only much. make assumptions based on his context. And I mean, he was yeah, a crude and, and a teetotaler who didn't do anything or, you know, maybe he dabbled or maybe he just smoked weed or maybe he just, you know, did a, did some speed every once in a while. But it's hard to imagine that he was completely clean the whole time he was. He was in that factory. The other one I worry, the other not worry about that I think about is, is Salvador Dali. I mean, what, what fueled surrealism to the point where you get distortions of shape like that and people playing with, with Dadaism and surrealism? It's really about the same time that mescaline was, was first being passed around. And I'm not saying that Salvador Dali took mescaline, but. It's yeah, just and weird that the that the that the that the time that that art starts to come into existence is right about the same time that the West begins messing around with these drugs for the first time. Yeah, well, there's a long prehistory to to the period that I that I uh, uh, wrote about. You know, in the early 20th century in Europe, in cafe societies in Europe, a lot of people were doing opium or opium opium related stuff, and um, hash was pretty popular in Paris in the 19th century. Um, I think surrealism is interesting because I don't think of surrealism as being specifically psychedelic. I think surrealism tends to be more about bringing up from the unconscious more uh, personal instinctual, repressed instinctual uh, urges and fantasies. Well, that ties and, into the Freudian paradigm. Yeah, of the, yeah. Which I, you know, psychedelics can have that effect. But when psychedelic uh, art comes uh, into fruition in the '60s and later, it seems to have more to do with transpersonal kinds of um, a, a transpersonal unconscious. Right, right. So let's let's talk about some of some of the iconography, <laughs> iconographic psychedelic painters. What do you think, for instance, of, say, Alex Gray? I mean, he's sort of a weirdo. Of, he, I mean, in, in, in terms of the high art community, he's, he's a complete outsider. But what, what do you think of his style and, and what he's doing? Well, he's more of a graphic artist. Right. And we were talking about that distinction earlier, about how people, you know, in the high art community tend to view graphic art as like, you know, poster art or comic book art or, you know. Yeah, and, and he, he, part of his bread and butter comes from selling his work in, the, in poster form. And, uh, and there are a lot of people, if you Google psychedelic art, you see a lot of work like that. Uh, I think he's very good at what he does. Um, but I think it, it, in a way, it puts a kind of a narrow, uh, slant on, on what I, in, on the way that I think of the psychedelic influence uh, being on, on contemporary art and artists. Even, it's like, like it traps the, it into a very specific paradigm of quote-unquote psychedelic consciousness that cannot be mistaken for any other kind of psychedelic consciousness. Right. There's a lot of stereotypical kinds of things, you know, crystallized patterns and, um, I don't know, the multiplication of eyes and... Right, you know, the repeating that, patterns, the repeating patterns, everything locked into a grid uh, that, that right. you know warps through that, space. Yeah, these recursive patterns, and you know, and I, I find that kind of fascinating. But 
people who have done a lot of acid tell me that after a while they get sort of tired of it because it keeps doing the same thing. Right. And and so my worry about that kind of thing is it actually starts to become a closed system and, and not actually open to the universe. As, You're as just playing possible. the same trip over and over or moving towards the same phenomena over and over as opposed to exploring other aspects. Yeah, and I don't, I, I'm not blaming this on Alex Gray. I'm just saying, you know, that when we think of that typical kind of style, that's one of the things you worry about. I think that, you know, a, an artist who's, whose work is pretty explicitly psychedelic and who talks about his work in those terms is, is a guy named Fred Tomaselli. I'm not sure if you know his let work, me, but let me, Everybody should take a break to Google Fred Tomaselli right now. T-O-M-A-S-E-L-L-I. T-O-M-A-S-E-L-L-I. Oh, yeah. So very cosmic. But, yes, I've seen his work before. Yeah, so, uh, now Fred, I know Fred and he's, you know, he's a very smart guy and, um, where Alex Gray is kind of a true believer. He's almost like a psychedelic fundamentalist. Um, I hope you won't be offended by my, my characterizing. I mean, he, he in, in a lot, he and his wife, they, they are starting a kind of church. Well, they call it New York. It's called the Church yeah. of the Sacred Mirrors. I mean, I don't think it's a kind of a church. I think it's a full yeah. church. <laughs> so, and, you know, there's the idea, I mean, whatever the idea that you want to take with that yeah. term, that's, that's kind of what it is. So, yeah. So the assumption of that is that if if you alter your consciousness using these substances or or by other techniques, that you may make contact with true reality, you know whether it's the universal lattice or uh, you know God will manifest to you or the Godhead of some sort, right? Yeah, um, Fred is is more uh, the other way of approaching this question, and I'm sure you know you know this is is. Maybe what you're getting in psychedelic consciousness is just that the, the neurochemistry of the brain is altered a little bit, and you're just seeing what what happens to the brain when it doesn't function along in the in the normal way. Right, and it's and and it, it's not telling you anything more about reality than than what what you see when you're riding on the subway or driving your car. It's just different. Right, and I'm looking at Tomaselli's work here, and he seems to have, you know, kind of cosmic backgrounds with um, his subjects have, you know, light and halo and dust forming around their heads into patterns and visions, as opposed to them being locked at the center of some universal grid and pattern. So it very much makes the subject the center of the phenomena, as opposed to, you know, being at the mercy of the phenomena. Yeah, and I think he's, he's also recognized, he's a kind of like a pop artist. He's, he's, he's toying with cliches of, uh, of psychedelic, um, style. Yeah, and he's, he's got some, um, the kind of psychedelic art I'm drawn to is the stuff that when you look at it, it looks like you're looking at, you know, something inside of a cell or something very organic and something that, you know, does have that recursive replication or that, that deep, um, nodded symbolism and i think there's there is a bunch of that in this work so so who else do you think is doing good work in the in like the psychedelic genre well i, I think another interesting psychedelic artist who's who's outside of the high art world is um the guy who's doing who does electric sheep um oh right right yes i've seen the electric sheep the uh the fractal 
Scott Drave. Yeah, he yeah, does. He does a lot of work with um. It's you know what what you could call algorithmic art, where he's basically building fractals. Um, right, and there's there's this crowdsource element in which people can uh, sign log on. What you what you get on is is what what is essentially a, a screensaver, but it's constantly morphing. It, it, it if you if you keep if you're signed on to the whole thing. It doesn't loop. It just constantly changes, and people who use it can vote for certain motifs that arise and sort of direct it. In right, and this ways. is this is something that I reference in in the psychedelic information theory uh, because you can look at the patterns that people per, can, that reference over and over as quote unquote beautiful, and find similarities in their patterns. The things that people inherently see as beautiful, and it is these recursive forms. Usually mm. looping from, you know, large to big, macro to micro, with some sort of rotational drift in them that gives them that sense of blooming and depth. And, um, you know, and especially if there's some sort of fade and decay in the iteration. So as it moves from small to big, the ones at the small end of the spectrum are like fading off into dust and the ones that are on the big end of the spectrum are blooming into full color. And you see that over and over and over again in these fractal progressions. And uh, the ones that get voted at the highest are the ones that kind of have these, these, the, this, this sort of what I call a temporal depth that you can huh. that, that you can see in in the progression of the pattern. Um, so it becomes yeah, like, well, well, so, so it becomes I, timeless. So like you're seeing back in time through the progression of this pattern. Um, and uh, I think people inherently find that beautiful, even though they can't really put it into words why they find it beautiful. Um, I like, I, I I'm, wish. I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to come to some sort of overall theory of why particular patterns seem beautiful to people. And it usually has this kind of nonlinear, you know, uh, evol, evol, quality of evolution through time to it. But, but yeah. Now, I wish we could bring Emmanuel Kant back in, uh, back <laughs> to life for this conversation. Um, you know, that's, you know, the question of whether, uh, when we feel like something is beautiful, it feels like beauty is is inherent in that object, even though it's often said beauty is an, is a subjective experience. But part of that subjective experience is absolutely that thing that I see. If I feel it's beautiful, it's not me; it's that thing. Well, you can actually but, do studies where you can you know rate patterns, and people will you know over and over again pick the same patterns as more beautiful than other patterns mm. there is something mm. subject i mean there is something i think wired into the way that humans perceive things you know we we like symmetry more than we like asymmetry we like rounded lines more than we like pointy and jagged lines there's you know there's certain you know we like things that evoke a softness a soft kind of texture as opposed to something that evokes like a grittiness um, there's, right. and there's certain colors that we're attracted to more than we're attracted to other colors. So you can put all these things together and you create like a theory of what we find beautiful. But even when you do that, there's, you know, it's still no guarantee that when you throw all those things together, it's going to be beautiful. You know, it could be off-putting or it could fall into the uncanny valley. It still has to well, look together the, in the, just the right way. You know, and that's, I think. Yeah, I think, I think, well. Thing. Yeah. <clears throat> I've been, I, 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 as you know, I've told, I tell everybody who will listen to me that the best uh, book on uh, psychedelic theory is, is your book. And tell me the name <laughs> of it again. What's it called? Psychedelic Information Theory. Yeah, that's it. I agree. It's one and, of the- and, you know, that helped me to understand a lot. But, uh, 
talking about theater, well, you have to realize that, at least in contemporary art, uh, producing in people the beauty effect isn't always what the artist wanted, wants to do. No, like, that's, uh, that's, you know, it's, and that's one of often, the... Often it's totally the opposite. Right. And, and, you know, the conventional idea about that is, oh, this gives people something new to think about. It challenges, you know, conventional taste. It's revolutionary and all that. But I think it's also, uh, that if you subject somebody to a kind of experience that's unlike what they normally do, it, it causes them or it might cause them to reflect back on their own consciousness. And that's where I see the big divide in art, uh, happening in the 20th century from the mid sixties on is no longer is art about creating uh, pleasing or nourishing aesthetic experiences, but are um, about making work that is in some way measures up to some standard of, of aesthetic good taste, but it starts to be about uh, experience and alerting people to the experience of their own uh, processing of the world in right. all different, in many, many different kinds of ways. The word I use is that art has to be aesthetically challenging these days. It can't just be, you know, something that looks good and has perfect technique. It has to challenge the expectations of what the viewer expects, quote unquote. Well, I don't, I don't, I mean, I mean, in a way, that's, that's always the case, you know, that aesthetic effects, I think, happen because in, say, in music, you set up a certain pattern and then you switch. Right. And there's something often gratifying about, um, uh, where you start to develop a certain expectation and then it turns. You know, a joke is like that. Mm -hmm. um, you set up an expectation and then you pull the rug out from under a person. And it doesn't necessarily have to be abrasive or uh, challenging in any obvious way. But, but just I a think little it, bit of a surprise. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you know, in the past 50 years, humor uh, in high art has been one of the most prevalent uh, things happening in high art uh, that, that there is, you know, joke, what would, what would have been prior to the mid 20th century regarded as sort of marginal kind of joke art is now raised in someone like say Jeff Koons, most famously, or uh, the, the, you know, the comic artist, uh, uh, comic art, like in Murakami mm, where, yeah, Humor is, and I, and I've asked my, you know, has there ever been a period in history when, when humor was elevated to high culture in the way that it is in, in, in today's art world? And I don't believe it has. And, and, and my supposition about that is, is it's, it's kind of a psychedelic influence. You know, a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of the humorous art that you see, um, you know, Paul McCarthy's work. Um, no, he's he's done a lot with really gross, uh, sort of borderline pornographic. Uh, oh yeah, kind of stuff. I'm he has a big, big, big stuff big, here. Yeah, yes, I have seen his. his yes, I have seen this before. It's sort of grotesque he, sculpture with oversized, sort of um, uh, polymorphic, and, uh, dysmorphic, weird creepiness going on. Yeah, and and I think I mean in a way that you know the 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 father of that kind of thing is R. Crumb, and it's it's amazing to me that 
you know, our crumb most recently, his, his venue has been the New Yorker magazine. <laughs> anybody, anybody who was looking at Zap Comics back around in the 60s and early 70s would never have thought that would happen. But, um, again, I think there's this tendency not just to challenge in an oppositional way, but to completely dissolve, uh, uh, the, the, the normal categories that we of uh, um, that we make out of the world since the French Enlightenment, this has been happening a lot, you know, in the past fifty years. And I don't know, you know, I wonder where it's going. I mean, well, it, I wonder if you're familiar with um, Akiyosha Kitaoka. He's a he's a graphic artist who specializes in rotating illusions. Um, patterns that appear to have a, a, a sense of motion to them, even when, you know, they're just, oh, like, just a kind of, it's a kind of op art. Yes. It's op art. What do you, what do you think? And that's that, I think that movement is, oh, I think even Bo Dealey falls into that category a little bit. Are you familiar with Bo Dealey? I think you've mentioned him before. How do you suppose me? D D E E L Y D E D E E Bo. Uh, B-E-A-U, I believe. Oh, Dealey. B as in boy? No, D. Oh. Well, Bridget Riley is the, the mother of op art. And, yeah, I, I, I talk about op art in my book. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put up an, uh, B, his name is Bo, B-E-A-U, Dealey with a D, D-E-E-L-E-Y. And if you just Google his name and, and click the images, you'll, You'll see. Um, oh, there we go. Yeah, some crazy. I mean, and he's got some um, spirals that he's got some vortices that appear to rotate, um, using um, these illusions that were popularized by Kitaoka. But he's also got some amazing-looking uh, psychedelic art, which you know borders on the the Alex Gray motifs. But they're all you know they're some of them are hand drawn, some of them are rendered on the computer. But they're all very. Um, very sort of yeah. broccoli recursive and in that, that really trippy curved space realm of, of high detail. Um, he's one of the, one of the artists that I've seen recently that have had pretty amazing work that is op and graphic and psychedelic. Um, but not necessarily with that, that, that church feel to it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, it's interesting that, uh, this is something that's on a lot of people's minds, uh, these days in the high art world that so much of what you see on, uh, on YouTube and Vimeo and places like that, there's really interesting stuff happening. Some of it produced by amateurs, uh, I mean, the, the, it, the, the, the need, the, the high art world is a container and yeah. it's, it's, it's you know, supposedly they say anything can happen in high art, but really it's, it's policed by snobs in, in a very determined way. And, uh, people are unsure what to do with, I mean, the video art, video art was sort of initially a, a kind of high art form, but now what you see just popping up on YouTube all over the place by, uh, unknown people. It's just wild and kind of uncontainable. And, um, well, the only container for it is, is now this kind of internet, uh, the intertube, uh, thing. And what is that? 
I, you know, that's an, un, I don't know. I'm very perplexed by the whole thing. Uh, but it's kind of fascinating. Um, have you seen these, speaking of video art on YouTube that people don't know how to classify, one of the, the most amazing things I've ever seen is if you, if you Google liquid magnetic sculpture, it's a Japanese artist that uses, um, he, he makes a solution of, of magnetic iron filings in a water or some yeah, sort I've of seen, gel. I've seen work he runs like that, through yeah. electric fields and they create all of these moving, spiky sculptural shapes. It's a very limited form. But it Well, I think that's the problem is is when the work starts to look gimmicky or you know, that it's really just oh yeah, I've seen this guy's work. Yeah. Oh, it's like a one trick pony. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And there's uh the same thing with uh recently they've been doing um uh either high speed or perfectly timed shutter speed images of water and fountains that make them look like they're moving backwards or make them look like they're moving oh, slow. No, I haven't and seen that. That's that's one of the the latest things uh that I've seen in the in the video world in terms of using the um uh, the, the trickery of of kind of hacking the shutter speed of your camera to the pressure speed of what's coming out of the fountain to make it perfectly uh. timed. So you're seeing something that looks like it's still or something that looks like it's moving in slow motion or something that looks like it's moving backwards, even though yeah, and then, the other motion in the frame is perfectly normal. <laughs> and the next thing you know, this, this will appear on, on television commercials, you know, the, these kind of things are so so immediately translatable into just kind of generic um, popular culture. So I think the thing we we need to think about is what's what kind of thought is ultimately it comes down to what's how what kind of intentionality is happening between the artist and what he or she is making, and and you know what what kind of complex complex thinking is. Is actually going on, right? And you, you in, mentioned something in, in terms of yeah. in in a more philosophical, possibly spiritual way, a way that promotes some kind of self reflection, some kind of deeper sense of of mind and uh, also relationship between mind and world. People want a sense of what the artist is is feeling, something personal about the artist in the work, and you don't necessarily get that in 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 gimmicks. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, and I, and I think ultimately it is all about feeling, because feeling is is uh, you know feeling is thought just before it becomes conceptualized. That at least that's how Schopenhauer puts it. It's not just some, it's not just emotion. It's it's sort of you know at that kind of intuitive level. Right. Yeah, I say feelings precede thoughts, and thoughts precede behavior, and so you've got this, this yeah this loop right. of. Of, um, and the way you behave. So, I mean, I, your, I think feelings. artists are like these kind of barometers of consciousness who are, you know, like canaries in the coal mine who are kind of picking up on vibes in the world, uh, uh, and finding ways to not just bounce them out at the world, but to, to kind of think of, reflect on them and provide a kind of space that, that I mean, what what is that expands consciousness, whatever whatever that means? Well, I think it's giving people new tools to conceptualize things in a in a different paradigm. I think really that's that's the only way to expand consciousness is to expand the way that people think about things and, and you know push them into. Well, I mean, you, you, 
maybe, but like you and I both uh, are big fans of Jim Jim, Jim Woodring. Yeah, but, yeah, of course. Woodring, you know, and 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 a lot of comic of the graphic art artists that you're talking about are actually using comparatively primitive tools to do that. To right. Do, I mean, and this is what I'm fascinated with comic book art is how just simple lines and fills can can evoke sense of, of character and emotion and just, and carry that weight. I mean, I remember as a kid drawing Bugs Bunny with, I think a total of maybe eight or nine lines and just being amazed that I could create a character with that few yeah. number of strokes. Um, yeah. And not only one that was, you know, that was something that, that almost came to life before my eyes, you know, that you can make frown, that you can make, you know, happy. And that our brain and, somehow interpreted these lines into, it, it animates them, you know, it gives them life. Um, yeah. It's, it's boggling to me sometimes. And I saw how you were, you're messing around with these little doodles, a uh, ball and cone. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, I started a Tumblr for that. Yeah, oh, good. And, uh, I was going to ask if you were going to start if you were going to start posting those up somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, so you have those on Tumblr, ball and ball and cone tumblr dot com. Yeah, I'm going to put up one one per day. Yeah, those yeah. are. I'll send, those I'll send really you the cute. link and uh, email. Um, but it, it doesn't have my name attached, so I'm I'm sort of doing this under the radar just to see how people react, but. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the rise of all these new technologies can distract us from the idea that it doesn't take much to, 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 to make art that, that kind of blows your mind. And speak, you know, the way cartoons affect people is, I remember when I grew up, uh, uh, seeing Mighty Mouse cartoons. Oh yeah. Not, not in the, and they were so sexy. You know, I'm like six, six, five or six years old, and I'm ha experiencing these bizarre feelings of uh, erotic, uh, you know, not not physical, but but some kind of strangely. Uh, uh, and our Betty Boop or Popeye. I mean, the early cartoons. Is, well, the early cartoons they really paid attention to that stretching and distortion of space. Um, yeah, and they're very, you know, very, they that very that that sort of rubbery and surreal feel. Comic yeah. cartoons kind of got a little bit cheaper towards the end of the sixties and the seventies with like the Scooby Doo's and and all of that, and you sort of lost a little bit of that because you know they just basically recycled backgrounds and uh, you know walk cycles over and over and over again. And yeah, they, I mean, they South didn't Park put any, put any effort into making the the world zany like like those old South, cartoons. Yeah, no, I think South Park plays with that simplification is in a really interesting way but it, that's m far more conceptual kind of uh, cartooning than I mean it's just too expensive to do what they used to do I, I guess except in, I mean Pixar and those kind of new highly uh, resolved kind of movies I, I don't know they don't interest me because they're too complete they're too filled in I think yeah, you can get you can get lost in the form almost, as opposed to letting it be. Yeah, there's in fact there's not there's not enough room for imagine for that kind of imaginative feeling that you that you're talking about. But I, I you know, getting back to contemporary art, I, I, I mean, I think that anybody who really li loves contemporary art, and I and I'm a huge, I I do love it. Um, you know, another thing that you see happening is an artist, say, who won, uh, there's a guy named Martin Creed who won the Turner Prize in England. You know, it's a big prestigious prize for younger artists. And one of his famous 
pieces is it's an empty gallery and the lights go off and on every two minutes. <laughs> and that's all, you know. And uh, you can say, well, this is the king's new clothes and all that, but <laughs> but there but there's something if if you sur- if you give yourself to it. Uh, what's the what's the, insta- what, what's the installation called? Don't blink, or you'll miss it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. It might be called off and on. I'm, I'm not <gasps> sure. Crazy. Uh, but you know, Eve's Klein. The, the idea of of just having a gallery show where there's nothing in the gallery uh, is is at this. You know, it became sort of a standard motif in in modern art. There's a there's a room uh, by Walter DeMaria in New York called the Earth the New York Earth Room. It's a permanent installation on the second or third floor of a of an old building, and it's just a gallery, a, a fairly spacious gallery filled with about two feet of dirt. <laughs> and you know you walk, you can't actually go into it, but you can stand in the doorway and look out into it, and it's it's very strange to uh, see an office filled with dirt. To see a gallery room. Yeah, and he he's the one that created the lightning field with the uh, the twenty foot spikes. It's in the I think the Arizona or New Mexico desert where. Um, and it actually desert. attracts lightning. Yeah, it's a field of twenty foot high spikes, and and if you go there, you're you're. Uh, I wrote about it in my book. If you go there, you're you commit to staying for a twenty four hour period in a cabin there. Uh-huh. So the the chances that a thunderstorm will come are are increased. But I always think, what's the obvious thing to do if you do that? You, is you do you, you got to do mushrooms or acid or something for that period? <laughs> and wait you for know. the lightning. Oh yes, strike. of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait for lightning to strike. That's great. So so guess, there's no, you he, know works like that. The theory that lightning never strikes the same place twice because <laughs> well, there's a there's several. I think there's. There's several hundred of these spikes, so I I, I don't know. Um, but the I you know what I think we're running out of the time. idea that you could these new kinds of art are are impossible to um, to evaluate in terms of old aesthetic standards, and that's what one of the things that uh, you know if you're sympathetic to the most extreme forms, that's what's interesting because it starts you thinking, well, what are the standards? You know what, and ultimately, it seems to me it comes down to: does it expand my consciousness or not? And if you know, the problem with certain kinds of generic psychedelic art is it doesn't really, because that certain kinds of familiar styles are just too they're too familiar. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so there has to be. So that's you know, Burning Man. I haven't been to Burning Man, but oh well, it's it's definitely full of. The expected and unexpected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I, I. Well, anyway, I shouldn't comment on that. But um, I think the the high art world is still a place where where interesting people are kind of pushing those boundaries of of the familiar in sometimes uh, um, spectacular ways and sometimes very subtle ways. Right. And we can. Uh, where can we find more information about your book? Uh, well, I have a website. It's art and psychedelics, psychedelics with an X dot com. And, uh, we can find your work in the New York Times. Search for Ken Johnson. Oh, uh, I, I, I write almost, I have reviews in the New York Times almost every 
well, yeah, pretty much every Friday. And uh, it was great talking to you. And yeah, I didn't Ken, get to talk to you so. any about um, you know, interesting new stuff in the field, but we can probably do that again on another day. Absolutely, Ken. Yeah, thanks well, so much. Uh, when you're in New York, let's meet up. Yeah, no problem. Thanks we'll so much it. for joining okay. us, Ken. Thanks a lot. Remember, everybody, you've been listening to Dose Nation. Make sure you go ahead and check out all of Ken's material. I'm your host, Jake Kettle. Thanks for joining us. Of course, with me, as always, is founder of Dose Nation and co-host of the podcast. Without him, none of this would be possible. James Kent, also author of Psychedelic Information Theory. Yeah, and you can um, like us on Facebook, subscribe to our RSS feed. We're getting a lot of new listeners, so um, spread the word and hope to see you again next week. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you uh, next week. Keep tuning in.